Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmond.edu. Hello, this is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts. William Faulkner famously said, if you're going to understand the world, you have to understand a place like Mississippi. And as a Mississippian, of course, I am biased, but I agree with that. And what he meant by that is both the good that has come out of Mississippi, uh, Eudora Welty and Faulkner himself and, and, and many other things, uh, but also the horror. Uh, that has come out of Mississippi and Alabama and other places with Jim Crow, slavery, Ku Klux Klan, terrorism. And that's uh, one of the reasons why I was really excited by this new book that has uh, just uh, come out from Thomas Terrence called Consumed by Hate, Redeemed by Love, How a Violent Klansman Became a Champion of Racial Reconciliation. Uh, Tom Terrence lives in Washington, D.C., uh, he is uh, the president emeritus of the C.S. Lewis Institute uh, and still uh, serves and works uh, with them. He was the uh, co-pastor of Christ Our Shepherd Church uh, there in D.C. and is involved in all sorts of uh, Christian ministry. And as I look, Tom, at this book, uh, I've got the hard copy in my hand, I see right in a row... Uh, I've got a blurb there, but John Grisham and John Perkins, so you, you've got a lot of Mississippi uh, represented in terms of endorsers uh, of this book. Thanks for being here on Signpost today. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you, Russell. Thank you for inviting me. Now, you, you know, having having met you in terms of your your uh, life as a Christian minister and as the uh, head of a think tank, you're you're probably the least likely person or one of the least likely people that I would have picked out as being previously a violent Klansman. So I'm I'm uh, looking forward to sort of exploring that a little bit. Uh, you talk in the book about growing up in the church. Can you tell us a little bit about what your your sort of formative experiences were in terms of religion? Uh, yes. My mother was very concerned for the kids to be in church on Sunday, and she um, made sure that she took us when she could, and um, we were there actually most most Sundays, and I went through Sunday school and then uh, to church for the sermon. And um, this continued on for many, many years. And when I was uh, about 13, I made a profession of faith. Uh, although, unfortunately, I was not born again. Uh, I didn't know that, mm -hmm. but um, I thought everything was fine. I said that I believed that Jesus 
died for my sins and was the son of God. And um, I was uh, promptly baptized uh, that evening. Uh, but no amount of water will make you a Christian. Mm-hmm. If, uh, if, if you're not one before you go under the water, you won't be one when you come up. Yeah, yeah. What sort of church was this? This was uh, actually a large Southern Baptist church in Mobile, Alabama, Dauphin Way Baptist. Oh, yes, I know Dauphin Way very well, yeah. So you were somebody who was very familiar with Scripture, you're very familiar with the uh, Christian story, even if you if you weren't uh, born again at that point. Uh, how, how did you start to become involved in racist and anti-Semitic uh, thought? I mean, what, it, it seems to me that this would be very different from, say— the late 19th century, early 20th century, one doesn't sort of accidentally uh, merge into the Ku Klux Klan. That, that has to happen, it would seem to me, step by step. And how did that happen for you? Well, um, I think it's important to uh, describe the times in which all this happened, because that was a key part of it. And um, I came of age in the early 60s, and just as the civil rights movement was um, gaining momentum. And um, down in the South, in Mobile, uh, well, in Alabama and Mississippi, I suppose you had ground zero for the civil rights movement. And um, this development, led by federal court orders for the desegregation of public facilities, schools, and whatnot, created a very significant um, kind of uh, backlash, and um, a populist movement began to develop more regionally than nationally. And uh, you had leaders like George Wallace, for example, the governor of of Alabama, and uh, other governors, southern governors, that stood up against the federal government and uh, protested this. And um, so that, that's kind of a larger context. Uh, it was a period of social upheaval, a kind of populist wave in the Southeast, particularly. And then in my own high school, which was a very large school that was selected for the desegregation, initial efforts of it, I went to start the school year one September morning, and the place was surrounded by federalized uh, National Guard troops. And ensure the peaceful admission of uh, two young African-American girls. And uh, I just became very angry about it, found some racist, anti-Semitic literature that was being circulated around the campus and started reading that stuff. And it began to influence my thinking. Mm. And I was, you know, I was a teenager. I I think I was 17 hadn't really developed critical thinking skills uh, at that point. Mm -hmm. And this sort of fed into, my parents weren't racist, uh, didn't teach me to be a racist, but uh, the culture was so saturated with uh, so many different things that um, were oriented that way Mm -hmm. that um, it wasn't difficult uh, for me to um, take umbrage Mm-hmm. And so I began to um, just buy into that. It fed uh, fears that we were having at that period. And this is a big part of, of that is uh, fear. Mm-hmm. And not just then, but uh, now even fear of what may come as a result of these things. 
so that was the start of it. I, I yeah. began to get, read the literature and read more and more, met with people who were more deeply involved and became more and more influenced uh, by a peer group of people that shared those views. Do you think it's um, it, it was a situation of finding a uh, – one of the things it seems to me when I see people who become involved in – extremist movements, there's almost a sense of belonging, a sense of solidarity, um, almost a, a sort of a feeling that people have uh, that they're designed to find within the church uh, that they find within some of these ideological movements. Was that was that the case for you? It was. I felt like I was a part of a, a group of like-minded people that really understood what was happening when the rest of society didn't. Mm. And... Um, you know, we shared these common views, and so it, it was a very definitely a, a community, mm -hmm. small but community nonetheless. So, what what were your views at the time uh, when it comes to issues of the races and and how the races should uh, should interact with one another? Well, the culture I grew up in helped shape my thinking, and um, you know that. This would sound very, very strange and unusual to any of the listeners now that are not my age, probably, but um, I grew up in a, a very conservative, traditional southern town, and in any kind of public area, you had bathrooms with signs that would say white, and then others would say colored. You have water fountains the same way. Black people lived in a certain section of town, and... They did not come into uh, the white areas of town. And my experience, actually, with uh, black people was that um, I never knew any black person who had a college degree, was educated, or in a position of um, authority, responsibility in the community, good role model, that sort of thing. The only people I knew were people who were in more menial or subservient kind kinds of positions. And so uh, that's kind of the background, and those are just a few examples. But uh, that set the stage, I think. And then I began to read this propaganda, and the narrative went that black people were not as intelligent as white people. They were definitely inferior, and um, the races should not mix uh, because that would cause the mixing of black and white in marriage. And the problem with that was that it would uh, lower the intelligence and civilizational capacities of the white people and on and on and on it goes. Mm -hmm. So those were shaping ideas. And then uh, also the idea that uh, the civil rights movement was actually part of a conspiracy, and the conspiracy was, um, well, uh, communism was very much a part of it. The communists were... In this viewpoint that, that, that you're right. reading about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, of course, in those days, communism was a very big concern in America. Mm -hmm. And so the idea was that the communists were using the civil rights movement, and then behind the communists were the Jews, uh, the Jews were the masterminds. The Jews were secretly manipulating 
uh, all kinds of world events in an effort to uh, eventually gain control, establish a world government, and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So that it sounds crazy, really, yeah. when you talk about it uh, now. But you know, that's similar thinking to what Hitler sold to the Germans back in the 30s, yeah. and they were some of the most brilliant people and most cultured people uh, in the world, and yet. And, and it also seems to me that, as with so many other things, what you have here is an ideology that is almost um, twisting and plagiarizing the Christian view of reality, uh, so that you you have a a sense of dividing the sheep and the goats, not in terms of the way Jesus divides them, but uh, in in these other categories. And you have this uh, sense of unseen principalities and powers, but they're not demonic powers, as in the Bible. They're they're secret human beings who are seen to be inferior. And you have a, a sense of a kingdom of a kingdom toward which you're working, a utopia, but it's not the kingdom of God. It's something else. It seems to, with all of these movements, there seems to be this this sense of of twisting that that biblical picture into a different sort of religion. Well, that's exactly right, and it's um, you know it's going on today. Mm-hmm. Well, and it seems to me it would be a lot. Uh, you you talked about getting getting literature in your your school, and I you, as soon as you said that, I immediately thought, well, think of the capacities now in terms of the internet and social media and YouTube uh, and, and other technologies to be able to disseminate those sorts of worldviews to people uh, much, much quicker. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because um, in those days, it was a matter of um, someone handing you something to read or... Um, inviting you to some generally small meeting uh, of people that shared those views, possibly a cross-burning or whatever. But that had a very limited reach. Mm-hmm. But now, as you're pointing out on the um, on the Internet, this has really poured rocket fuel on the, uh, yeah. um, the growth of, uh, of these groups. And it's worldwide, too, and it has connected or networked people all over the world, certainly Europe and the U.S. are very closely tied together now mm-hmm. uh, in these circles of uh, far-right extremism. And, and I should say by far-right, I don't mean conservative. Right, right, right. Yeah. Well, what would you recommend? Uh, I actually had a, a parent ask me this uh, not long ago, and I'm curious how you would answer, who said, what What should you do if you find that you have, say, a, a teenage a boy, for instance, who has been looking into this sort of violent extremist, uh, racist, or anti-Semitic conspiracy theory stuff on the internet. How should that parent uh, deal with that? Well, I've never had that problem with my kids, so I can't Mm -hmm. uh, tell you from experience. But um, I, I would say that it's really important for parents to have a close relationship with their kids, mm-hmm. to be able to talk about and communicate about issues like this without really lowering the boom on them or, or becoming um, panic-stricken or that sort of thing, mm-hmm. but to try to engage them in a conversation and just see what their thinking is and have a, a kind of rational discussion uh, in order to get to a place of, of assessing where they are and then determining what might be appropriate from that point on. Mm -hmm. When you're dealing with teenagers, 
you also have the problem of um, teenage rebellion, individuation, and all mm-hmm. that sort of thing. So you've got the built-in issue of uh, if, if you say something is uh, A, they're going to say it's B. Yeah. So yeah. you have to tread carefully. Yeah. Um, but And it may be appropriate to bring in somebody other than the parent to try to connect with them too. Yeah. So Yeah. Yeah. Often uh, it seems to me when, uh, when a parent isn't able to step in, there's a grandparent or, or some other trusted adult who can, who can do that. Now you ended up in prison. Is, is that right? How did that come about? That's well, I took on board this um, hatred and it grew. It metastasized and eventually, I moved over to Mississippi and became involved with a group there called the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, which was described by the FBI as the most violent right-wing terrorist organization in America at the time. They were at the end of their period of ascendancy, but still had a little life left in them. And um, anyway, I got involved there, and two of us went one night to bomb the home of a Jewish businessman in Meridian, Mississippi, who had spoken out against the Klan and uh, did not realize that um, the FBI was aware of this. The place was staked out with uh, local police, what we would call SWAT team people Mm -hmm. today. And um, when we arrived there to deliver this bomb about, I think, one o'clock in the morning, there was a, a shootout, actually two shootouts, but I won't go into all the details. At the end of it all, the person with me was killed. I had been shot four times at close range with double buck buckshot. And when I got to the hospital, they said if I lived 45 minutes, it would be a miracle. Mm. It was a miracle. It was a miracle of God's grace and mercy. And I certainly didn't deserve to live. Mm. Uh, but God had mercy on me, and um, I was in the hospital a number of weeks, later tried, sentenced to 30 years in the state prison at Parchman, which was one of the worst in the country at the time. Mm-hmm. And um, I went there with one thing on my mind, and that was escaping so I could go back to what I'd been doing. Mm-hmm. I was what you might call hardcore, mm-hmm. and uh, it took about six months, recruited a couple of other inmates, and some of my colleagues in the clan and um, escaped successfully. But a couple of days after that, the FBI found out where we were and um, we were in a wooded area um, outside of Jackson, Mississippi and took turns standing watch over a farm road that went by and uh, close to our position. And I'd been standing watch And one of the other inmates came and relieved me about half an hour early. And I went back to our tent in the woods. And within five or ten minutes, there was this incredible hail of gunfire right up there where I'd been. FBI SWAT team was closing in. He was the first person they saw. They knew we were heavily armed with automatic weapons, hand grenades, all that. And so he was killed instantly. Mm. And I should have been there. But... That was another instance of God showing mercy, mm. very undeserved. But I was taken back to prison and put in the maximum security unit this time, and that's where life began to change for me. Mm. So how did you 
Uh, of course, things are, are radically different uh, for you now. Uh, obviously, you you were um, at that point an unregenerate uh, person who knew the Bible but didn't know Jesus, uh, or maybe knew about the Bible but didn't know Jesus. Uh, you were a, a racist, a terrorist uh, at the time, and now. Here you are, a, a follower of Jesus Christ and somebody who's uh, an advocate of, of racial reconciliation and a Christian understanding of reality. What changed for you? Well, what changed was that um, God entered the picture. <laughs> I suppose that's the, uh, the short answer. When I was put in that cell, to keep from going crazy, I had to read all the time. And I started reading racist and anti-Semitic literature that I hadn't read before and read Mein Kampf, which was Hitler's solution for, contained Hitler's solution for the Jewish problem and um, uh, lots of other racist stuff. But then I came to a point where I shifted to reading classical philosophy, hmm. Plato, Aristotle, the Stoics. And from that, I came to the idea that uh, truth exists objectively, independently of our wishes and that it's something to be discovered. Mm. And I also uh, uh, really resonated with Socrates' statement that the unexamined life is not worth living. And that gave me a desire to seek truth wherever that might take me. And uh, it, was a, it was a shift that would have profound consequences, although I, I had no idea at the, at the time that it would take me away from my ideology. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what happened was that um, in this search, I eventually came to wanting to read the Gospels. I felt drawn to read the Gospels, and not because I thought I needed anything from different than what I had. You know, mm-hmm. I thought I was fighting for God and country. I was the good guy, and these other people were the bad guys. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I wasn't looking for salvation or solace or anything else. But as I was reading in the scriptures, the lights came on, I Mm. I say often. Um, I began to understand what those scriptures meant and how they applied to me. And I began to be convicted of my sins. Mm. And I was brought to a place of repentance, which had not been part of my previous experience when I was... um, made a profession of faith. I had not repented of sins. Mm. I was afraid of going to hell. I said the right words, but this time it was different. I was convicted of sin, came to a place of repentance and uh, a lot of tears and heart-rending engagement with the Lord, really. And finally, thanks be to God for the Baptists. They taught me God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son uh, that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. So I had that in my mind, and so I knew what to do once I came to that point of seeing my sin and my need for God's forgiveness. And I prayed and asked Jesus to forgive me and to take over my life, and something changed at that point, and I've never been the same. That's 50 years ago. Mm. Now, did uh, things change for you in terms of, I mean, you you'd spent all this time immersed in this really counter-Christian, counter-biblical uh, ideology. Did that just suddenly evaporate, or did it take time to, to sort of, as you're being discipled, figure out what went wrong? How, how did that happen for you? Well, that's an interesting um, 
story. This actually happened before I was converted. It happened through my reading. Um, I was reading a book that where the author addressed anti-Semitism and racism in the context of a larger uh, look at the decline of Western civilization. And he debunked in just a few, a few paragraphs uh, both anti-Semitism and racism. Uh-huh. And so my mind was liberated, and that's part of the value of that philosophy and all the rest. Yeah. It, the Holy Spirit used that to sort of liberate my thinking, my mind, to where I could then begin to be spoken to by the, the real truth uh, that's in the Scriptures. So that part was dealt with before I met the Lord. Uh-huh. And so and then, so then that, you had the question, what do I do with my guilt? As Martin Luther uh, had, right? And, and that was answered by the gospel. As answered by the gospel. Now, the thing that was really important here that needs to be distinguished is there's a world of difference between realizing that you uh, what you believed is wrong and you shouldn't think that way and it holds no water mm-hmm. uh, and actually loving those people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where, you know, through reading the scripture, you know, be transformed through the renewal of your mind and scripture is a key part of that, that um, I came early on to see that God called me to, to love my neighbors and my mm. brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so that's what led me into this whole thing about uh, loving people that are different, you know, different yeah. races, ethnicities, uh, people of different political views. Yeah. Yeah, so in Ephesians three, sort of model of the of the reconciled body uh, to each other and to God. Yeah, I think one of the lessons that people can learn from this book, and again, the book is consumed by hate, redeemed by love, and from your story, is uh, not to give up on people. Uh, the, the, I think there are, there are probably a lot of people who would have assumed uh, when you're in prison and, and mentally imprisoned to all of these extremist ideologies that that you were kind of too far gone. Uh, and I think there are probably a lot of people in all of our lives that we might assume, well, those are people who would never uh, respond to the gospel. And yet the grace of God has a way of, of finding uh, people that uh, that the rest of us are tempted to give up on, doesn't it? Well, it's certainly true, Russell. And um, I think it would be fair to say that no one in Mississippi at that period would have been considered less reachable for Christ than me. Mm. But there's a long history to this. Uh, If you go back, I mean, look at Manasseh, the king of Judah. He was the worst king in history and the horrible things he did. And yet he came to a place of repentance right at the end of his life. Mm -hmm. Or the apostle Paul, who was a religious religious terrorist. Right. uh, You know, and look at what God did to him. Or Augustine, who was a sex addict and a a philosophical um, dilettante, I guess Mm -hmm. you'd say. And it just keeps going. Uh, Francis Mm -hmm. of Assisi and just up to Chuck Colson in Mm -hmm. recent times. God does that sort of thing. Not because these people deserve it, but simply to demonstrate the power of his grace and love to encourage others that there is hope. Yes, indeed. That's a good uh, word to end on. This is Thomas Terrence, and the book is Consumed by Hate, Redeemed by Love. And uh, I really commend this book to you. You can uh, really see the grace of God at work in the telling of this story. Thomas Terrence, thank you so much for being with us today on Signposts. Thank you for having me. 
Uh, This is Russell Moore, and you've been listening to Signposts.